Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We help clinicians apply a BPS approach to their clinical practice. We run group and one-on-one mentoring sessions to help you feel more confident to handle the uncertainty that comes when working with humans in pain. So keep up to date on our website, tkex.org, and our Facebook discussion group for all our content and updates. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined by Mr. Joe Camarado. Joe is a CrossFit certified physical therapist from New Jersey, passionate about helping athletes in their rehab and helping clinicians apply strength and conditioning principles into their clinical practice. He's also one of the lead instructors and mentors at Across the Continuum, a continuing education company offering mentoring and courses to upskill clinicians in all things coaching and exercise programming. And I'm also a big fan of his podcast across the continuum. So Joe, you've got like 28 jobs, respect, and thank you for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me, man. It's a, I think the, for the podcast, the intro, doing somebody else's intro is like the hardest part. You know what I mean? Like you come on and you're like, um, you went to this school and you do that thing. And I know you because of this, but maybe can we just have you say it? And then you're like, yeah, that's fine. So yeah. Hey, what's up? How's it going? Going well, going well. I, I love it. It's a fellow podcast host to podcast host interaction here. You know, yeah. all my feels, I know all your feels. <laughs> Amazing. Um, the infamous question that we start with and start wherever you'd like, what's your story? Oh man. All right. So I was born in New Jersey. I went to school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I went to one of those six-year accelerated physical therapy programs, the doctor of physical therapy, three years undergrad, three years grad school. And then I somehow found my way into the military setting. So I have been in and out of working as a, a civilian contract physical therapist for the Air Force and other military for three or four times now, not in the military. My wife is in the military though, but um, I have worked in almost every physical therapy setting that I can think of, you know, short of a short of a couple. But after I got out of school, I worked for the Air Force down in Mississippi, um, and I learned how to be like a, a primary care manager because we have you know ability to order imaging and you know see see patients direct access and refer to other physicians directly, as well as some some bases you can order medications, which I'm not sure I'm on board with, but um, I then worked in a private practice where um, my time was cut short after my my boss and I butt heads and disagreed on principles of practice. And then I launched into home health and travel physical therapy. I was, you know, introduced to folks who are literally illiterate for the first time. So uh, unable to, to read. And so I, I had to learn you'll appreciate this, how to communicate complex medical jargon and skills to folks that, you know, are, are unable to read. So that was interesting. We then moved up to New Jersey, worked for the military again, um, on base, seeing folks that were active duty and then still just wasn't able to really find my culture and, and fit being somebody who is very strength and conditioning forward as far as a, a vehicle for rehab. And so I decided to, leave. Um, and that was job number seven, clinic number seven in six years or so now that I've been at. And now I'm here attempting to help folks who are unable to find their fit as well to just do 
better at being uh, a strength coach in the clinic, applying these things. And, and I think our, our most recent shift is going to be towards mentoring folks one-on-one on how to not only apply those things in clinic, but uh, manage folks remotely outside of the clinic to kind of bolster their, their income. So yeah, that's me. Yeah. Wow. So many different contexts to apply the the principles of coaching it, for different types of clientele, different types of humans, different types of problems, mostly would you say uh, MSK injury wise, what kind of like conditions and goals did have people had? Yeah. The, the, I would say the, uh, you know, I would say the only physical therapy positions that I haven't been would be like the difficult physical therapy positions. So like pediatric, um, like acute neuro rehab, I've never done like stroke or TBI. Um, not that I haven't worked with those folks, but, um, as far as th- I mean, like regular orthopedic presentations, you know, low back pain, of course, is a huge one. Um, post-ops I've seen folks with uh, total knee replacements, ACL repairs. I've seen folks outside of cardiothoracic surgery, as well as, um, uh, when they're just in the hospital for being sick. And so, uh, you know, it does the, the, the goal for what we're doing now is to try and communicate these principles to, to use with anybody. Cause I mean, you and I both know that physiology is relatively the same, no matter who you're treating and, uh, not that everybody responds to stressors the same, but, you know, there's a certain uh, kind of ability for folks to improve and adapt to stressors uh, across a large spectrum. So I don't know if that, did I answer your question? Yeah. And okay, cool. accounting for different capacities and needs, yeah. still applying same overlapping principles in each setting within the resources and constraints that you have. And I talked about constraints Um you touched on uh, how you were butting heads with a fellow employer in private practice and coming from an Australian healthcare background, we get similar issues, but I feel like it's a bit more pronounced in the States with insurance and other kind of constraints within the system itself, let alone when helping people who have their own constraints. So what was that like uh, looking back at your traumatic past as much as you feel comfortable? I mean, looking <laughs> looking back, I really kind of effed it up. If I'm being, if I'm being honest, you know, at the time, um, I had recently been introduced to the logic of rehab, which was, you know, Derek miles and Mike Ray at the time. And so everything was kind of going out the window and, and being a couple of years out, um, I was just confronted with a, a clinic owner who thought that his way was the best way, right? A small clinic. There's, there's only one reason that folks start their own businesses to do the things that their own way. And when, you know, I come in and I start doing it not that way. And there's uh, issues with my ability to communicate uh, and have co- confrontational chats, um, uh, kind of bombarded with also what you're saying, the insurance and, and you know, clinic owners wanting to get the best bang for their buck. And most of those things that have a lot of bang are the things that I don't really like to do. And, and uh, it's definitely compounded. So that definitely stunk having to quit. I had to go to the cops. I had to get a lawyer. I had to, you know, be very, uh, unsettled for quite some time. And, and again, like, uh, it's, it's definitely shaped my ability to communicate. Now I, I definitely have difficulty having those, those, uh, conversations because they've been so sideways in the past. But, um, the, I think what came from that is my desire to, work in the military because there's only one payer source, right? 
Um, so we don't have to really worry about the insurance is dictating what reimbursement that you're going to get for what. I mean, when you look at the insurances here, if you have Blue Cross Blue Shield or, you know, and better than Magnolia, there's only certain things and you can't bundle, you know, a couple of different types of treatments together. And so what ends up happening is that the the billing office tells you really what the right mix for the for that patient is. And then you kind of uh, have to do two things for them and one thing for you. So, yeah, but with the military, you know, you can kind of be on your own and there's only one pair. So everything gets uh, reimbursed and it's much better, I think. And so uh, that's kind of how it's shaped it now. And I also learned that I'm just not very good at working with folks that don't uh, share similar views, which is uh, something I'm working on as well. You know, there's uh, a lot of different folks that make the world go around and I can't all be me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's um so much easier when you're in a system that kind of streamlines the, the payment process so that you're not kind of having to cater for so many different stakeholders with competing demands and understandings and even goals to the patient in the center of the entire treatment. It uh, makes it so much harder to have that autonomy as a clinician to provide what's best for the person. Yeah. And, you know, I know folks now that have clinics that their culture matches like what they're looking for and they say it's great. And like, you know, I wish that I could have found that in, in that, in those formative few years and I just wasn't able to. And, um, I don't know. I kind of just stopped looking at this point. <laughs> Fair enough. And there's, I feel like there's a few people in that basket where they're kind of trolling, like struggling through rather like um, toiling through the, the, the shit we'll say, and, and just making do with what they have. There's just not as many, unfortunately, there's not many opportunities for, you know, uh, we'll say uh, ethically minded business owners around with opportunities for financial, financially secure jobs in private practice. Would, would you say, yeah if we were to make a very generalized comment and obviously city dependent, would that be a similar theme that comes up where there's just not enough kind of opportunities to have that autonomous practice with similar kind of uh, clinic owner with similar values? Yeah. You know, you kind of, you hire somebody and hope that they're going to do what you need. But, you know, I, when I talk to, to clinicians now and coach them through like looking for a job, I say, be very upfront with who you are and what you do and what you're about, because it's so much easier to avoid that whole mess of, I got, I got canned or I had this bad outcome or I'm in a non-compete now. And, and just being like, Hey, this is, it's, you know, it's like dating, you know, this is who I am and that's who you are. And if we can't figure this out, then maybe we shouldn't even get started. And so, um, as far as ethically minded goes, you know, I, I, I don't, blame business owners for trying to keep their businesses afloat. Right. But it, it's, and I'm not jealous of this at all. The, the ability to not only pay the bills, but also to do what's right. It, I can't imagine is, is very easy. Um, and, and I often ask myself if I was in a position where I was the owner and there was somebody not doing it the way that I wanted to, would I have reacted similarly? So, um, yeah, <laughs> I think it's a good point. Like, um, the communication from the start, and understanding your boundaries as a clinician of what you can and would not like to, like you're not willing to work within. So then you can have a bit of a clarity at the start to having, you know, multiple options and then filtering out the options that don't work for you at the start. Yeah. And I, and I mean, it's, it's also like people, clinicians have to decide if they're willing to like wait for that right fit, you know, because you're going to talk to a clinic, you're going to be like, listen, I don't really, 
do or jive with manual therapy too much. Is that cool? And they're going to be like, well, no, because X, Y, Z. Right. And I've had this happen to to some of my mentees and to, to clinicians I talked to and they're like, they're like, we were on the interview on the phone and they're just like, all right, well, this is what we do. And that doesn't fit. And then you're like, all right, well, I need to really find somewhere. And they're few and far between because we're on Instagram and we're on Facebook and we assume that there's this big like group of folks that represent this large pool in the right in the population that are like, oh, there's a lot of cool clinic owners. There's not, right? We're in a bubble. We're in this tiny bubble of folks that think like us. And then once you get out of that bubble, like, I mean, personally, if I were to drive to any clinic within 10 minutes of here, none of them would know the, you know, the IASB's definition of pain verbatim because they're just like, that's not a thing outside of our bubble, really, unless that was you know, somewhere where there were some cool clinicians, but you know what I mean? Like not to, not to throw smut on any, any clinics or clinicians, but it's just a, a weird space that, that you and I are in where we seem to have this weird intimate knowledge with stuff that people don't really focus on. Yeah. It's like a, when talking to other clinicians locally here, it's like I'm talking a different language or I need to kind of remember the language that I used to speak years ago and then revert to that. It's a, just such a leap and it's a shame. It doesn't have to be this way. There is a, that huge gap. And due to so many other factors that we could probably rant about for, for hours. Um, <laughs> but, but I think um, one of the, the things that within this conversation um, is the implications for the patient and the clinic, the, the client rather. And I wanted to ask you, there was a podcast episode in across the continuum called the monologue of an educated patient and um the educated patient is you yourself i'm very interested to dive into your experiences uh personally with going through the healthcare system yourself um, with what you know as well and what that was like because i think that's often forgotten in these conversations when it can be so easily portrayed as clinician versus clinic owner and like you know business-centered versus ethical, it's very dichotomous, but then we forget there's a third person in the mix right in the center. So what was your experience like, if you don't mind sharing? Sure. So at the time I had, I was doing jujitsu and I had received a gift from one of the mats, which I guess was some sort of fungal growth on my foot. And so I went into my my primary care manager at, uh, at the base and it's, it's in a spot that, well, it wasn't a spot, it's not there anymore. So, you know, but it was in a spot where it normally wouldn't have been. And I also have what's called a Hagelin's deformity, which is like an extra bony growth on my, on the back of my calcaneus. And so, um, he was like, Oh, you have a bone spur, right? Cause it was right at that insertional aspect of the Achilles tendon. And so he's like, you have a bone spur, I'll probably have to send you to podiatry and they might have to do some sort of surgery and which is like a crazy roller coaster of emotion for the uneducated patient where they go in with this thing that they have been, you know, thinking we can just lop this thing off and then being like, Oh no, we might have to cut your whole foot off. Right. Uh, to, to somebody who is uneducated, you know, they would probably leave that in worse shape than they, they had showed up in. And that that's kind of like the goal is like, don't give the patient 20 things to worry about when they come in with one thing to worry about, leave, have them leave with this kind of confidence that everything's going to be fine if it is. And, you know, you're resilient and all that, all that good stuff. And so the, what ended up happening was I was like, all right, well, I mean, internally I was like, I know it's not true. So can you just send me to dermatology please? And he was like, yeah, whatever. 
but I don't, again, like it's not, it's not the physician's fault that he's not educated. He's doing what he can to help, but there is a conversation in there to have about, all right, well, you don't really know a whole lot about this topic. And so you'd sooner, you'd sooner say, hopefully you'd sooner say, I don't know, but let me ask somebody who does then just kind of either make shit up or, or pull stuff out of your hiney for the time being so that you can look smart in front of the patient. And, and so that's been my exposure. And and you can ask my wife is I'm not a very good person to bring to the doctor's office because of, you know, once, once you see, once you like know how the sausage is made, so to speak, right. You're like, Oh man, this person isn't listening. They're not, you know, motivationally interviewing me and they're not doing these things. And, and then I end up almost like nociboing my wife about the doctor that we're in front of like, Hey, this person didn't build rapport at all. We need to, we need to get the heck out of here. You know what I mean? And so, um, it's tough because even when I go like to the dentist, I'm like, are you sure like that I have a cavity? Cause I don't feel it. And, you know, so uh, I would say my experience with the healthcare is, um, I'm a, I would say a, a tough patient because, I just, there's, there's certain things that I look for that I'm biased towards, um, just as far as those soft skills, that interaction that really doesn't happen a whole lot. And when that doesn't happen, it kind of like goofs up the rest of the interaction for me. So, yeah. Yeah. There's a sort of standard that we expect from other healthcare professionals that we often don't get when we come across, uh, communication skills and how to interact with their human and person-centered, uh, frameworks and it's, it's unfortunately so rare to see in healthcare settings that we're not trained to deal with humans and, and to communicate in helpful ways and also provide that shared decision-making as well. That you, you kind of end up uh, playing the role of an expert and just making shit up, as you said, just to fill in the gaps and, you know, Im- impress the patient. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, again, I never try and, commit uh what i recently learned is a fundamental attribution error where you just assume that folks are bad because they're bad people and that they're more so uh slaves to the context that they're in and so it's not like you know this this doctor's like trying to kill me or anything like that they probably are just maybe they have a family that i don't have a family and i have more time to read or maybe they have different priorities and so i i have since uh growing up i, I recently turned 30 uh, now that i'm an old man i've been trying to be a little bit more empathetic and uh, understanding to people's plight and their uh, situations that they're in. So it doesn't mean that I don't get annoyed. And because again, you know, you and I both know what happens when weird information goes sideways. It's not that I don't get annoyed, but uh, there's, there's certainly more understanding that goes behind it now, but I still get butthurt when that happens. So I have to find a happy medium. Absolutely. That your uh, disappointment is valid. And if, you say that you're old and I'm bloody ancient as well. Fellow 30 year olds <laughs> talking right here. Let's um, go. Yeah. So um, I wanted to move over to SNC principles and it's a common topic in exercise prescription and for us clinicians who are generally biased towards movement based therapies. What are some of the overlapping principles and the main um, themes within SNC that are most important for clinicians in clinical practice when working with pain and injuries? Sure. I feel like, I feel like there's this un, unavoidable feeling of confidence that comes from being able to just be 
moving weights or completing tasks or learning new movements or being strong that just you can't get from many other places, right? We, we have these folks that people don't come in because they hurt, right? They come in because they're uncertain about whatever is going on. And so that, whether you call it lack of self-efficacy or whether or not they actually have a lack of self-efficacy, but that, that kind of gap in their faith or their understanding of what's happening and that need for some sort of external input is, I think, reflected beautifully in just getting folks to do things that they didn't think that they could do. Or, you know, if we're trying to be big brains here, talking about like predictive processing, trying to violate that expectation of, you know, something happening by using some sort of strength conditioning principle or or movement to help them kind of square that circle, so to speak. And so, um, and this, this has nothing to do even with getting into all the secondary benefits of, you know, exercise in, in general that um, is reflected. But yeah, I just think that that confidence in having people accomplish tasks, whether they're big or small in a setting where they have come and been, they've been vulnerable and they've said, Hey, like I need help. And, and I say, okay, cool. Well, you don't need as much help as you think. And I'm going to show you through these sorts of exercise prescriptions. And I'm going to hype you up the whole way because again, it's like curious that you have clinicians that, that almost we have, we have say maybe you guys have the saying to talk out of both sides of their mouth. Do you guys have that over there where explain if you don't mind for us? Yeah, sure. Where on one side of your mouth, you're saying, oh, this is you know, something that you need my help with. But then on the other side, you're like, oh, this is something that uh, is going to get better or, you know, kind of talking in two different directions, talking out of both sides of your mouth, basically representing one idea, but then kind of contradicting yourself in the same, same session with a different narrative. This isn't so bad, but you shouldn't do this sort of movement or else you'll make it worse or, or things like that. And so um, I kind of lost my train of thought there, but that's what I was thinking about. Yeah. So there's that kind of, um, it, I, I sense the SNC, the strength training principles and the, the coaching approach can be a way to uh, bridge that gap to make that coherence between the, the narrative of, you know, pain doesn't necessarily mean damage and you're safe to move. And like, this is like, let's show you how to do it and let's get you to experience it. Cause it can be like, uh, on the one hand, we, even with strength training, I've been guilty myself and I have to catch myself if I'm using strength training purely for symptom reduction and pain relief on the one hand, even though on the other hand, I'm verbally telling them that they're safe to move. It's like the, the person leaves with two competing ideas, like, hang on, I'm safe to move and this will naturally heal with time. And I've got favorable prognosis, but I need to do these, uh, you know, three by 12 specific strength training exercises for like two weeks that what and you yeah yeah and it's you know there's some there's some dissonance in my own logic for some of this stuff because i i'm not i wouldn't say like anti-manual therapy but these passive modalities that you know there there's a big camp in in the instagram's world and the, on the interwebs that that are like if the narrative's great right then you could do whatever um and i and I always like think back to all right well I mean, every clinician knows, generalized sweeping statement, every clinician knows that you tell them something and you give them some piece of evidence or fact or what have you, you give them a home exercise program and they come back doing something exactly opposite to whatever you expose them to previously. And so how does that 
how does that fit into the idea that we can do this thing that might be, you know, stretching a X, Y, Z or, or scraping on this, even though there's a narrative, like what happens if they do what most other patients do and totally let that narrative fly out one ear and they just kind of fill that gap with whatever sense or reason that they can make with what they remember you doing, right? If we're doing some dry needling and you're like, well, this doesn't, I don't really know what a trigger point is. And they're so small that they're smaller than the head of the needle. And this doesn't really, you know, you still stick that needle in that sore spot. And then they're like, oh, we stuck it in that right in that spot that hurt and it felt better. And so it must've been that. And so it's not lost on me that we can also apply that to exercise, right? And it's definitely a cognitive distance in my own head if I can be against these passive modalities, even if the narratives are great. Well, I mean, we can take a patient who's, we're trying to apply strength and conditioning to an exercise and and say all the same stuff. Like it's not because your muscle is weak or it's not because like how strong is strong enough to never feel pain again, right? And and we can do all these great grandstanding and then they still are like, well, we strengthened my glute med, which is why my knee feels better. And it's like, all right, all right. so I don't, I don't really know how to, how to round that square either. So it's, uh, and I forgot the question. Again. <laughs> it, all about the SNC principles. And I think yeah, you, you yeah, touched sorry. on a great point about the, the narrative as well. The, uh, the, the common idea that if the narrative is, is uh, up to date, then, you know, you can do whatever treatments. And that, that's like the very simplified, I guess, um, interpretation of that. I'm sure there's lots of nuance to, to clinicians who say that, that there's uh, it's more about the meaning of the treatment and, and the person's meaning of the treatment perhaps rather than our explicit narrative because you know they're not going to retain every single word that we say in a consultation and that's that's think that's maybe the important key when in especially when it comes to snc principles because yeah we don't want to make them leave thinking that they're weak and they need to do their you know sbd squat bench deadlift every single day to be pain-free that's like not the message that we're intending much better way than I said it, but also I'm not here to say that like exercise does better than anything else as far as managing symptoms goes. Right. But if my idea is if we're going to do something, we might as well do something that's like supremely healthy and like, we'll push these folks in a good direction. If, if anything's going to work, right. Why don't we pick the thing that has this sort of gigantic secondary benefit of improving morbidity and mortality and like literally almost every outcome as far as health measures that you can look at. Right. Because again, like the, if we apply anything to somebody and they have a meaningful response to that, it doesn't really matter what it is as long as they're on board with it, improving their symptoms. So if anything's going to work, then why don't we hedge our bets and just use this thing that they might still attach a meaning and response. They might still get a placebo effect from that, a contextual effect, what have you, but they have no choice but to also have these positive health outcomes. Whereas if we're saying, all right, well, I mean, exercise is no better than anything else for symptom man- management or modification. So I'm going to do like K taping or cupping these easy low hanging fruit. There's no secondary benefit as far as like, you know, their A1C doesn't come down because we put tape on them or anything like that. So. Yeah. That's a, an, another uh, common straw man of like, you know, the, the, we don't have a magical intervention and most interventions provide can provide similar um, you know, non-specific contextual effects. And um, it, it gets construed, misconstrued rather to, you know, everything's placebo or like nothing works or everything works, just do anything. <laughs> and that's, again, 
back to the the, the narrative section of, of like it doesn't matter what we do it's just about the narrative it's like well, the, well why don't we just you know cut them open and do surgery there's there is an extent and there's boundaries and if if we know that all these treatments can work um what does the person want what have what's worked for them in the past and how can we have that conversation with them and maybe nudge them towards longer term solutions and ways that they can manage for themselves and yes that might be exercise it might be other things as well we're not um taking things out yeah and i mean there there's some conversation to be had in there about giving them tools to help self-manage in the future right and i will say that i've seen patients and i've had patients that have bought dry needles that have bought theraguns that have bought tape that have bought cups to do that very same thing. And it's like, shit, <laughs> you know, it, it's tough. Yeah. It's, um, and it, it was never, uh, I'm sure, uh, clinicians, uh, don't intend for people to dry needle for the rest of their life. Every single time they get the patient gets a flare up, but we also have, uh, a way to Matt, perhaps, as you mentioned, nudge or influence the, the meaning effects that they take and maybe nudge them towards more of the, uh, active modalities that they can do for themselves perhaps least cost and uh most secondary benefits but again i'm talking out of my my biased <laughs> exercise lens here same appreciate your honesty um that's why i'm a podcast host just talk to people that like align with my bias is that that's is that a similar yeah don't tell anyone that yeah. it's not like this is recorded or anything um Mate, uh, uh, the next question I had is in terms of what you've come across as a mentor, as a course facilitator, um, as a clinician as well. What are some of the common challenges and struggles that you hear um, from other clinicians in clinical practice? Just like in general? In general, with um, when working with pain, injuries, MSK. Sure. I mean, personally, the the first like year or two, it was just like things weren't getting better like I had anticipated them to, right? And so you only get so much education when you come out of school and you get a shitload of education when you come out of school, but you only get so much in figuring out that real world. All right, this XYZ didn't work. I gave them this diagnosis and going in that direction didn't work. And so now what do we do? So I think just that kind of closing your eyes and and slowly walking forward into the abyss of clinical practice evidence and anecdotal, you know, reports to other clinicians. And, and so I think one, like not enough experience is always, and I know how that sounds as far as like experience is important, but just like managing that kind of gap between, all right, what I'm doing isn't working. So, so where do we go now? And, and feeling comfortable in there to, say, all right, well, we still have these principles to treat by. We still have like no awful red flags or anything like that, that we would really need to panic about. So let's just like wade forward slowly together. Um, and then other ones are just like the burnout one is tough, right? You have um, uh, Medicare is now reimbursing less and less, which is forcing clinics to have their, their uh, clinicians see more and more. Um, I remember when I was working at that clinic that shall not be named, I saw uh, an upwards of 22 to 24 patients at some points um, a day in an, in an eight or nine hour day, which is super great, right? If if building rapport is one of the most important things that we can do with a patient, you can imagine how difficult that can be with two or three patients at a time. Um, but yeah, then, I mean, if I were to 
to hit on my own bias, just like we don't learn anything about strength and conditioning, or at least I did it in my, you know, accredited doctoral program to, to, to manage any of that stuff. But uh, yeah, that, those are probably, probably the big ones. Yeah. The burnout one is such a tough one. That's such a system wide embedded uh, issue of, yeah, all this like overworking, seeing patients back to back and, uh, that's the only way that we're uh, in, we're incentivized to do. So then that motivates clinical decisions, and and yes, yeah, just becomes an unhelpful uh, context for helping patients in a meaningful yeah. way. And you know, it seems generational. If I'm being honest, right? I I recently spoke with a, a clinician who um, I used to work for back before I was in physical therapy school, and she was, you know making, uh, uh, these, you know, I don't want to say complaining, but she was complaining that the clinicians now like that are my age were not interested in, you know, working their fingers to the bone until the day that they're dead. Right. And now that we have like Gen Z coming into the workforce, all I see are like articles about how Gen Z isn't putting up with it. Like they're not interested in applying to jobs that aren't they don't have the salary listed or if the culture isn't great, they're out of there immediately. And so it definitely feels like as these young kids who are skateboarding on the sidewalks start to interact with these, you know, old folks like us that are shaking our fists at this guy, that things are, are hopefully going to go in a different direction as far as that, that willingness to stick in one spot, even though it sucks, but I don't know. It's, I mean, uh, I know that a lot of folks don't like calling it burnout, but uh, it's just, I don't know what else it feels like that when you're in it and there's nothing to do because everybody's treating the same way. But, you know, with, with Instagram and with folks connecting and networking, it seems like there's at least a little bit of uh, light on the other side as far as um, people finding more comfortable places to, to be in. But yeah. Yeah. And um not trying to claim that either of us have a quick solution to this very complex problem. What, what do you feel you'd like to see more of, or what would be helpful for the, the kind of burnout that we see? And I'm, I'm, my mind is going towards a more kind of space and time for clinicians to reflect, to uh, have the resources to go out to courses and mentors that uh, such as yourself um, to have the the skills and the the network to bounce ideas, um, so they're not you know back to back and that's all they have and they've got the other financial family pressures on the side. They just don't have the the time, the space, the capacity to upskill or to even try something different. I feel like that that's one of the themes that comes up. But what do you see and what do you feel might be helpful? I mean, it's it, we're pulling on the string in two different directions in that we want to get paid more and do less work. Right. And it's not like we want to get paid more just because it's fun. You know, I paid $9 for a coffee here when I go to Starbucks and we're looking at a house in the middle of nowhere, Montana for a half a million dollars for like this, you know, not a mansion. And so at the same time, like all these folks are trying to get paid more for good reason because they don't want to be scraping the bottom of the barrel. But then you have clinicians who are like, all right, well, where's that money coming from? Right. Where, where does that, come from it doesn't come from out of thin air and so as far as solutions i don't know how to how to fix the financial one i mean with with folks pulling out 
you know, you get a lot of people who are who are gunning for break off and do this side side hustle and and make money that way. Totally, totally fine. You know, I all my income comes from managing managing folks remotely. You know, I'm not gonna uh, shake your hand over the table and give you the middle finger under. Um, but there, there's also like you can't just do that all the time with every clinic. Like there has to be folks to are there for the folks that can't afford to do that sort of thing as well, right? The the Medicare and the Medicaid. And, and there's a big push and, and a big camp that is like, all right, this is great, all this boutique physical therapy and rehab, but like, what about the folks that aren't able to get there? We just like kick them to the curb and I don't know how to fix that either. I think another one that's tough is uh, that clinics get really big and then they lose handles on the quality of what's going on in the clinic, I think is a, is a big one, right? If you have 50 clinics, you're just kind of hoping that the clinic director that is likely a new physical therapist that they tricked into being clinical director, right? With 10,000 more extra dollars a year is going to make sure that they can have tough conversations that they can review research and do their own self-education and, and run things well. And so there, I guess that there's might be a conversation to have about smaller clinics, but again, how do you convince a clinic owner to be like, don't, don't expand, right? You're good there. Cause then we start getting real weird with regulating stuff. And I'm not about to start saying we need to regulate financial income for people because folks will come to my house. And so I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know how to fix any of it. Uh, all I know is how to complain. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, mate, I'm on the same boat. There's a can't claim to be an expert on this. I think uh, uh, these are conversations that need to be had in general and opening up for uh, discussions uh, rather than sweeping under the rug and, and, you know, maybe pretending it's not a thing or it's not impacting clinicians, livelihoods and, and care as well. You definitely said something interesting about the continuing education. I think one thing that would be great is some sort of regulatory body saying, you can't do that as continuing education. You know, like that doesn't count because this long list of things that shows that just because you say it works and you charge folks money for it, they can get CEUs. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I went to talk therapy for, for a few years and talking with my therapist, he was like, there's a regulatory body that says you can't make that a continuing ed because it's bullshit. And I think that that would be great if there was some, and it might exist, but I don't know. I mean, when I apply for continuing ed for our course, it's send us a description of the whole thing, send us 500 bucks. And then like two weeks later, there's 30 CEUs that come in the mail and you know, they're, I don't know. And then there's reciprocity between the states. And so I don't know. Again, uh, I sound like I'm voting for more regulation here, but maybe I am because there's there's clinicians who are going to these continuing aid courses. There's an authority because they're a continuing aid course and, and they're paying money and then they do it in the clinic and then they're, yeah, big mess. It's Yeah, it's such a cycle there where they're probably – um, getting paid to do those courses or at least having those courses paid for because there's a yep. clear revenue stream for this gadget or this modality. Um, and there's all their colleagues doing it at the same time. And, you know, there's, there's 
returns on that investment. Perhaps there's uh, different kind of returns in other courses that are more uh, in line with our current knowledge base, but there's less like immediate kind of gain. So I can see that the, I can see the rewards of taking these courses. And then, but I mean, there's also a big conversation about money helps people, right? If we have more money for our facility, then we can provide better care, right? I don't know if you're, um, if you know about like effective altruism at all, it's kind of come into the light recently, but yeah, very little, like but yes. one of their stances, like you need to make as much money as you possibly can. And these career fields are good for it because you can help so many people with that money that you have left over. And, and you know, it, it, not everybody can be pro bono and we can't just say like these clinics can do stuff for free because then nobody gets care at all. And I'm very aware of that as well. It's I'm not, I'm not jealous of, of policymakers. Absolutely. There's um, it, if we segue into the uh, common struggles with clinical practice where things talking about modality, say a modality doesn't work and you've just you know invested all this time and energy and, and uh, money on a course and it doesn't seem to provide the results um, and navigating that space, I feel can be a way to bring in some of our principles of ethnicity and our understanding of complexity and uncertainty and motivational interviewing. That's how I can see it working. What, where does the the where do these skills help for clinicians stuck in that space of you know i'm trying something and it's not working yeah i mean it, it gives them i think a structure of i i get hung up on like what it means for something to work right because that stuff works if you define it as patients feeling better um, but then we can start to get into like, what does it mean to feel better and, and how does that work? But as far as the strength and conditioning stuff goes, you can at least rest assured that, you know, that there's going to be some sort of adaptive response, mostly to the stressors of that in a positive direction. And we can't say that for most of the other things, right? We can't say that ultrasound provides a reliable and, and, you know, sweeping positive health response to anybody that you apply it to. But uh, it, it really is tough because how do you get folks on board with things that probably don't work as well in the short term as other things that you can get like patient buy-in for? And that's, you know, I roll my eyes saying that, well, you can't get patient buy-in with exercise. I mean, you can, but it's tough. <laughs> Oh, so what is it? Um, the the yeah. nuances to this, because no one defines works in the first place. Yeah. And this is where the discussion happens and the debates that we see on social media. So I think, um, are we talking, as you, as you mentioned, is it uh, patient satisfaction? Because many things can bring about patient satisfaction, both ethical and unethical. And then is it feeling better? And what does that mean for the person? Because someone can feel better, but have a horrible diagnosis and prognosis and have weeks to live, but they feel better. So like we can have these discussions and uh, maybe reflecting on the definitions is the first point of call because otherwise it doesn't become a helpful discussion or people are talking about different things. 
Yeah. And I, you know, I did a whole presentation on what it, what does it mean to feel better, right? We talk about natural history, regression, the mean, those two big gigantic things that nobody learns about in, in school and placebo and nocebo. And I mean, there's all these biases that just come into play when it comes to folks improving or you misattributing their improvement to what you're doing or putting too much weight in things. And so again, it's like we keep, I also just read uh, how to change the how to change minds how right? minds yeah. change by how minds change that's right beautiful book. uh yeah. and it, you can't just sit folks down and give them education and then poof they're good to go right uh so another another complaint without an answer on the note of uh all these uh fallacies and and errors in thinking and um, placebo nocebo effects what what do you see as some of the the key um, misconceptions about these concepts um, based on what you you've come across obviously not diving into an entire lecture here but if, if we were to give some some cliff notes of um, main takes yeah I think I recently posted about regression of the mean and I think one of the comments was like so what we just abolish physical therapy and it's like I mean, it would be a start. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's, I don't know. I think that being able to flex when your career field comes into under, under fire under scrutiny or having put it under scrutiny yourself already, I think is a, is a, is a good way to go about addressing that idea that maybe we're not as useful as we had thought, right? Because the misconception is, you know, natural history, regression of the mean. Um, what are we just like entertaining folks as they get better? I mean, yeah, kind of, but you have to be all right with that. And when you understand that, for the most part, we're just waiting around, right? We can still hype people up while we're kicking them down the road, right? Instead of pointing out all these things. Because again, if we're talking about talking out two different sides of your mouth. You're like, this patient isn't getting better with what I'm giving them, but what they're giving them is things that make them right. Kinesophobic or have concerns about their movement or, or their body. And so, um, I think being able to look at yourself and, and go into that self scrutiny and be like, all right, well, maybe I'm not as useful in that way, but there are, there are other ways that I can still put this hat on and, uh, help folks out even though this might be the reality that i have to consider um, but as far as like misconceptions go that i don't know uh, yeah a lot of folks don't know about that stuff outside of our bubble so i don't know if there's a lot of misconceptions they have <laughs> yeah there, there is that um kind of so what are we just a, a personal trainer come, come up quite often and i think that's that says a lot to our roles or our, the perception of who we are and what our role is as rehab musculoskeletal therapists. Um, and then I think that's, that's a sign that maybe there's time to reflect. And as you mentioned, to scrutinize our assumptions that we have about what we do and, and um, what we can provide, I think, cause that's, that's been shaped by our priors and by what we've learned and what we've seen other, uh, you know, role models and influences do and, and say and act. So I think that that's probably the first point of call. Maybe it's a sign to uh, question, self-scrutinize our assumptions and biases. 
Yeah. I mean, one of the first things that I have folks that go through our mentorship is, is like self-scrutiny. Make sure that if you're under the impression that you're great <laughs> and you're applying all these things and you're the reason that people are getting better, that, you know, there there's a kind of uncomfortable truth that comes along with that. And, and even just like using terms and definitions that you haven't sat down and really tried to wade through, like, you know, one of the big ones we hit on is like, what is an injury? Right. And, and we could probably sit here all day and, and talk about how rehab professionals use injury as with reckless abandon without actually knowing what does that mean? What are the criteria? What does the, the literature say? And and so that self-scrutiny, that ability to, to, I guess, pull the, pull the hood back or open the hood, look under the hood. Is, there we go. Look under the hood and say, all right, maybe, maybe things aren't as they seem. And, and why is that? I think uh, is, is a good place to start. And, and with that, that, that comes a, uh, it's not comfortable. There's a, there's a discomfort in reflecting and critically thinking and it takes a lot of effort. And there's, uh, I feel certain factors that facilitate that and can support one's um, journey through that process. Um, and this also ties into my, my next question about reliable sources, but I think there's some strengths that you have. I can hear through what you're saying with that, that kind of humility in your sense of humor that makes it easy. And I, I can resonate with the self-deprecating humor. That's like, I'm, I'm, I don't do, I don't know anything. I don't know jack shit. Like let's just try this and see what happens. And I'm here. I know what I don't know, but there, I feel like there's some strengths and qualities characteristics even that can help with the self-scrutiny. Um, what, what do you, what do you feel might help support other clinicians with that self-scrutiny? Um, I feel like other people poking holes in them for lack of a better phrase. But I mean, if we're to, if we're to talk about like how minds change again, like that's street epistemology stuff is awesome. You know, think if you're focusing on the technique rebuttal rather than the, the topic rebuttal and being like, how did you come to this claim? And was that a reliable way to come to a claim? Because I just today I posted like folks are more on board with the things that comes out of their brain than the things that comes out of your brain. And so one of the tenets of like motivational interviewing is trying not to get them to say what they believe, right? Because the more often that they say it, the more likely they are to believe that. And so the um, that stuff is is really cool. And just having somebody else to ask questions, right? Because you're never you're never going to ask yourself those questions unless there's some event that happens where you're like am I the problem? Right. Is it me? You're just going to think, and you see this every day in the clinic, like clinicians are saying they didn't do their HEP or they didn't do it right. Or they're too fat or, you know, what have you. And it's, it's really, I mean, yeah, I can get real twisted up about it, but having other folks and having folks who know what questions to ask, I think is one of the better things to do. And that's like, I, as much as I hate social media, I mean, I certainly wouldn't be the physical therapist or the person that I am today without it. You know, if you had taken me six years ago before I met like Derek miles and said that I would be, and just totally erased him from my life and said that I would be the same physical therapist, you know, it would be totally false because the, that, you know, prodding and poking on the clinical athlete forum, what had happened. And, 
you know, reading those things and watching them have these tough conversations with other folks, it wouldn't have happened. And so if we're in our own vacuum and, and we just talk to ourselves, we're just going to think that we're the best thing ever all the time, because when you don't talk to folks for a while, you're like, wow, this is pretty great. <laughs> yeah. I, I see that as a red flag. If there is no questioning or if there is no self-scrutiny or um, questions to dive into, as you said, like definitions in the first place, or like, when might this be unhelpful or when might this piece of information that I'm saying be wrong and like those contexts, I think that that's, uh, if there is none of that, it's very much a red flag that they're probably, you know, profiting and selling something. And the problem is, and you might feel this as well, how do you take somebody who you feel would benefit from your, let's say your mentorship, right? Or your education and tell them you need this because you don't know what you're talking about, right? You don't, you don't. And so the difficulty is that like as a physical therapist or as a, as a healthcare provider, you're supposed to be this confident source of information, right? You're supposed to know what's going on and you're supposed to have x-ray goggles for anatomy and you're supposed to like do all these things. And so when it comes to improving your care, not only do you have a selection bias of the folks that are getting better, just continue to come back and the folks that don't, don't. But you also have this like hero complex where you're like, all right, well, I'm the greatest thing ever because all my patients are getting better and I don't need like any sort of readjustment in, in how I'm treating unless I get to stick needles in folks and then I'm going to pay 2000 fucking dollars for that. So it's complicated. There's a, there's like, how, how do we get yeah, no, <laughs> Apologies, not needed at all. I, like, how do we, um, it goes with my, last question for curiosity how do we nudge how do we use some of the principles that we know from mi from uh the socratic questioning techniques from street epistemology from how minds change to to nudge people towards more reliable sources acknowledging the constraints of you know from the outside it might appear like we are less confident or people don't like that ambiguity or that the, the nuance doesn't sell as much as maybe the, the quick fix or the black or white uh, controversial posts. So yeah, open topic. What, what are your thoughts? Uh, there? I think just being straightforward and vulnerable and a buddy to people is a great place to start. <laughs> you know, everybody for the most part, at least on the highlight reel that is social media thinks like it looks like everybody's got figured out and nobody has it figured out. And if you just ask them like, Hey, I need, I need help with this. Or why don't you tell me more about that? Then I think it's a great way to not only demonstrate that, Hey, you know, there's a, I know, I know a lot of things, but there's a lot of holes in my understanding and it's okay for that to happen. And let's chat about the holes in your understanding and maybe you can help with mine. And just like being a genuine person to other clinicians, I think is, is nice. And, you know, I, uh, I, I have over the last few years strayed away from being like a, this poking prodding person on social media, as much fun as it is, because it doesn't, it doesn't help at all, you know? And I've tried to just, I guess, understand better 
Um, but but how do we get folks to to start to do that? I think we just need to like start to again not live in a bubble and not live in a vacuum and and talk with people on how to embrace that uncertainty and that and that grayness that exists. And, and we can still be very smart and very certain about certain things, but I mean, there's just so much that we can't, and that's all right as long as you're steering the person in this direction and taking steps forward rather than like falling into this camp of, well, I, I need you to be broken or, or something for, for you to fix me, so to speak. Yeah. It, it's, it's an uncomfortable place to be where, but I think a better place to be where you start to care less about the specifics of treatments or specifics of special tests or specifics of exercise, like, you know, the, the kind of, oh, this, this exercise and not the other one that is important. I think it's a scary, but a very freeing place to be because then you can kind of wiggle in the wind when things get a little weird. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you can adapt when things don't go to plan. I think there's the perfectionist part of me that really gelled with the corrective exercise frameworks a few years ago. And it's, I still see it abound in the SNC world of like, you know, this is the best exercise for this condition or for this athlete or for this particular movement. And then my mind now goes, it, it depends like, you know, what are their goals? What's their previous training history? So it's got like a protective filters now from all the mistakes that I made in the past where I was stuck on the minutia and not looking not zooming out, not being able to zoom out and see the bigger picture. But I think one of the troubles is that everybody loves certainty and the things that get shared the most are the ones that are really certain. Right. And so that it comes back to like, well, how do we poke that uncertainty into, into folks? It's, uh, I think it's posting stuff and I'm, you know, I freaking am a Instagram slave now. So posting things that, are certain with actionable items, but then following up with folks and being like, you know, maybe it's this way or, or maybe we should chat about this further or stuff like that. So. Yeah. I feel it, like there's opportunity there for the nuance after. Yeah. Cause nobody wants to be uncertain. It's not fun. <laughs> no, knowing what we know about uh, predictive processing it, models and perception. And, and it's a, it's a select few folks that, trust the uncertain folks you know it's you have to reach a certain spot on the dunning-kruger scale to be like oh okay he's a he's a good resource because he doesn't he doesn't have all these certain like very uh hard stances and opinions on things and again few and far between and if you and i joe and daniel are trying to connect with those folks that are coming right out of school or who are very certain it's tough because how do we, and I still, I still don't know the answer. I'm trying to learn how to sell right now so that I can better help more people. But like, how do we tell people that they don't know what's going on, that they don't know what's going on, you know? I don't know. Yeah. We're on the same boat here trying to figure out the, uh, the language to reach the, the masses and the people that need our help outside of our bubble. Um, Maybe. And- Maybe we should develop a wide toe box shoe and then in the in there we can write stuff on the sole or something like that. Yeah, within the actual shoe itself. That's right. Yeah. That's why it's wide toe. That's, That's right. the only reason the toe box is wide. That's right. <laughs> but we yeah. don't say it, so right. no one knows. 
mate, I love this discussion and I appreciate your, your honesty and your vulnerability in opening up to the realities of uh, the uncertainty. I think um, you, you touched on like what reliable sources are and there's a niche number of people who actually rely or see someone who is uncertain as a reliable source. And I definitely, you are one of my reliable sources because of your vulnerability. So appreciate Bro, it. Bro, you too. I mean, I don't, if I ever, I don't know. And I wanted to tell you this. I don't know how you think of so many questions. How, what is your question thinking process? Like, do you sit in a hot tub and stare at the stars and just like write, write questions down? Cause I, I never thought of so many questions in my whole life. Uh, when there are stars in here, yes. When it's cloud, cloudy like today, I just uh, look at you know the the rain and feel despair, and then think of my questions. So I adapt according to the environment. But no, yeah, I think there is a. I definitely have um, privileges in accessing my trusted resources, and I just you know am on the shoulders of many giants in many different sectors. So steal away the the questions. I think um, the other. The other part, like touching on reliable sources, is having people who are uh, willing to share their sources. That's probably a, a major green flag for me and for listeners um, on how to filter information. So. Another another difficult topic, though, like some people's sources suck and they have a lot of meaning and authority in them, you know, and it's just... Eh. It's tough all around. Yeah. Like for listeners who are keen to look into that social media post you just made today, and it, this will be months in the making. So they'll probably have to scroll back like by this time, like a year, because I've got a long podcast list <laughs> now. Um, the joys of being a podcast host. But uh, for those keen to connect with you and hear more about your work, where can we find you? Um, I am at Across the Continuum. There's multiple use in continuum. So watch out. Um, but that's, that's the, the mentorship page, my lifting slash physical therapy page is, uh, at dr.joe.dpt. I don't, I don't post a whole lot on, on there anymore. That's more for having the lulls with the group chats, but yeah, across the continuum is, uh, the main spot to find me. Uh, and that's where you can find all of our free resources, the PDFs that I've made, um, the, you know, waitlist for the mentorship. And and so that's, that's where I am most days. My, my screen time just told me I spent six hours a day on, on social media last year or last week. So I'm falling apart over here. So if you need anything, come, come on Instagram. I'm there. <laughs> Destroy your life more by that's increasing right. <laughs> that screen time. Love that. And highly recommend across the consumer podcast. Loving your work. Thank you. I love your work too, man. It's really good. Knowledge exchange. Amazing. Thanks Joe. Hey, until the next time. Thank you. Yeah.